So uh, for those of you that I, I don't know or haven't had a chance to connect with, uh, my name is Craig Kubitschek. Um, I'm one of the elders here at Matthias's Lot. I'm what's called a lay elder. Uh, for those that don't know what that means, that just means I'm not on staff and I have another job. Um, I actually uh, lead a sales team for a technology firm um, downtown, and I am absolutely humbled to get to preach and share with you tonight uh, what God has been stirring in my heart through this Ephesians text. If um, you've ever been in this moment, I would imagine most of you guys have. It's, it's this time when you go to a, um, a party, let's say, or maybe you have somebody over to your house. Maybe you're the person who is being brought to this party, or as we like to have um, folks to our house often, we'll, we'll have uh, married couples or dating couples or, or new friends over to our house. And Inevitably, the first question that is typically asked, at least usually by my wife, is, so how'd you guys meet? All right? Like, everybody wants to know, like, how did you get here? I mean, it's so often even as you're doing that greeting, you're like, so how'd you find Messiah? Awesome. I don't know what else to say. That's my go-to. <clears throat> so I thought it would be appropriate tonight to share with you a little bit and remember with Amanda and I a little bit about where we've come from. Um, my wife and I, Amanda Kubitschek, obviously, um, celebrated our nine-year anniversary in May, which is just insane and crazy that she's put up with me this long. Yeah, amen. Um, we actually been together for about 13 years, and we met at a small little Christian sports camp. I say that in jest a little bit, but it was a camp called Kanika. It's down south in, of all places, Branson, and it's where we met. And uh, the first day we're there, so it was my last summer. I'd been there for like seven years. I'm on leadership. Like, I'm pretty cool. And it's Amanda's first year there. She's four years younger than me. She is a counselor. Let's get that clear. She's not a camper. That would be weird. <clears throat> and she shows up, and the very like first night at camp, we're playing this game, and it's called ragball. And let me explain what ragball is. It is this ball that's half wiffle ball, half softball. You can swing and hit it as far as you want, and it's going to go about two feet, okay? So we're playing this game, and for those that don't know me, I'm just a little competitive, okay? I can make literally like walking to that back door like the most competitive event. I'm going to push small children and women out of the way to win. So we're playing this game, and at one point, from my side of the story, I wasn't getting that into it, although I had the nickname being Mr. Intensity. And I am, hit, this, hit the ball, it goes somewhere, probably three feet, and I am like taking off running so hard that I come sliding into home. We're, again, we're at camp. It's a bunch of college kids, and we're playing with a ball that you can't hit. But I am like determined. I come sliding in, my leg just gets shredded. I got, you know, the baseball, whatever that thing's called, bag, like in my leg. I got blood everywhere, dripping everywhere, and the game ends, and we're walking off. And all of a sudden, this girl comes up behind me and just like hits my shoulder, and I'm like, what in the world? And as she runs by, she says, hi, Cubby. Not a name that I like. My nickname at camp was Kubi, and all of the rest of the leadership team was trying to get me a new nickname, Cubby, because they knew how much I despised it. I'm like, who is this random girl? Just, I've never seen her before. What in the world? Well, my side of the story is I like to remember it. The next morning, I'm a boat instructor. So all these counselors came early to learn actually how to drive a boat. And from my side of the story, we're all lined up. I'm at the front of the line. I've got a bunch of dudes lined up. And all of a sudden, this young lady comes walking down. She sees me with my shirt off, and it's game on. She gets in my line in my boat. No one else is there. And thanks to the rest of my leadership team, they like move people around and intentionally leave her in my boat. That's my side of the story. The rest is a little bit history. A week later, we go on a date, and this is a picture of us all of 13 years ago looking like we're 12. Now, I said I don't look much different tonight when I was talking to Amanda, and she goes, yeah, except you had muscles then and not so much now. And I was like, touche. I was at camp all day, working out all day. Well, a little later, we, we love to take trips, and so this is one of the crazy trips. We're just kind of a fun-loving group. We act a fool, we rock climb and ski, and we go do all sorts of adventures. About three years later, I build up the courage, and I ask her dad to, to marry her. First time he said no, I had to do twice. Um, no shame, just go for it, keep fighting, dudes. And so this is us on our wedding day nine 
years ago, I, I swear I look like I'm 12. Today, I look like I'm 14. What a, what a fun moment. As we were looking back at all these pictures, we just kept remembering. And it just brought up all of these stories of all of these things. And we were just getting giddy. And then we literally went on our honeymoon, went out to Colorado, planted a church, which I don't recommend at all the day after your honeymoon. And then we start trying to figure out what we want to do with kids. We knew in our story we were going to uh, adopt. It was going to be the way that we raised our family. We started down a road of Ethiopia, and the whole country shut down. We moved back to St. Louis, long story short, and we got to have this little kiddo. For those who have ever been through the adoption process or know anything about it, it is an interesting process. Ours, long story short, we're on a wait list for about nine months, got a phone call at 7 a.m. They said, by the way, you've been chosen. You need to be the hospital in four hours. And literally five hour, uh, two hours after she was born, we're holding our daughter, Quinn Elizabeth Kubitschek. Now, this little cute, innocent being who sometimes is known as our terrorist around the house, we got to celebrate her two-year-old birthday in January. Yes, she's had crazy hair from day one. Always funny when my wife gets the comment, did you have heartburn? I don't know why, but apparently when people are pregnant, if a kid has lots of hair, it's always an interesting way that she responds. And then this was just a couple weeks ago when we were in Florida. Man, it is so much fun to remember, isn't it? Like you sit around with your friends and you just start to think about all of the incredible things that you've done in life. That's what we're going to look at tonight. If you guys have got your Bibles, turn to Ephesians. We're going to pick up in verse 11 in a text that has absolutely been gripping my heart. Ephesians 2 verse 11, when you're there, say, I'm there. He's way faster than all of you. Verse 11 starts like this, therefore. So I always had this teacher, probably in English that I never paid attention to. And they always said if you come across a therefore, you got to stop and ask, why is it therefore? And I was always like, yeah, that makes no sense, but I get it. So we got to ask, why is this word therefore? Well, last week, over the last actually two weeks, Mark had talked specifically about how we were dead to our sin, and then last week specifically got into but God, and then we get into this passage about how we are his workmanship. And so what the writer, Paul, is saying, he says, look, everything I'm about to talk about, you have to be reminded of what was talked about previously, that you were once dead, but God showed up, and now you're his workmanship. And then he says this word, remember. Yeah, it's going to be a long night. We're going to take work. I'm kidding. This word, remember, has absolutely captured my heart over the last couple weeks. This idea that Paul, out of the gate, says that you and I need to remember something. It's not a new concept for them because Paul was a Jew. If you look throughout all of the Old Testament and New Testament, there's numerous reminder and reminder and reminder of, hey, you should remember. It starts with Noah. God gives them a rainbow and says, this is going to be a sign so that you remember that I'm not going to flood the rest of the world. They go across the, you know, we studied in Exodus, they go across the Red Sea they put up all of these altars. There's constantly this idea of remembering. So I started thinking about it. All right, Paul wants us to remember. Then why do you and I struggle to remember so much? Like if you're, if you're like me, you, you probably don't take a lot of time to sit around and just remember. And so I, I kind of started to ponder this, and, and I went down this little bit of a rabbit trail, and I started to think about, all right, why are some reasons that you and I struggle to remember. The, the first thing that I, I feel like is, is pretty true is that it is too painful. Like we've been burned. Maybe you, you had a rough past growing up. Maybe it, it involves some abuse. Maybe you were neglected. Maybe you just didn't like junior high. Granted, no one did. Whatever the case is that we struggle to remember because it was just so painful. We're like, I'm not going to go back there. I'm not going to remember whatever that event was because it was so painful. Secondly, maybe you struggle to remember because you're so focused on the presence. If I have another conversation, myself included, when somebody asks, how are you doing, and I hear the word, I'm busy, I might lose my mind. 
because I'm the king of it. I don't stop to remember because my mind is constantly wandering on the next task, the next thing that I have to do. And so I never sit and actually remember because when I sit for 30 seconds, I'm literally thinking of the next 20 things that I've got to get done. I don't know if anybody else can relate to that, but that is why I personally struggle to remember. I I just constantly have to be going on to the next thing. Another reason I think that we struggle to remember is that we're lazy. We're too lazy. Now that seems probably a little bit weird. You're like, wait a second. Too lazy just to like sit back and like think about the past and remember? Yeah. Because see, Paul is trying to get at this concept that we should remember and we're out of discipline. It's not something that we think about doing. A lot of times we don't think about doing it because, well, we've been told to not really remember, not to worry about the past, to focus on the future and and continue on. How many of you guys, uh, maybe this is going to be more applicable to to the next uh, season or next uh, sermon or next whatever uh, time that we meet? How many of you guys just graduated? Anybody? High school, junior high, first grade? Wow, you guys seem real excited about that. Okay. He's excited way more than you people who just got done with college. All right. How many of you just got married? I know there's a handful. We get in these seasons of life where we're right on the cusp of the next thing, and all that we can do is think about the next thing. We've just done recently some premarried counseling with some of our close friends, and my constant reminder to them was sit in this moment. Remember where you are. You're never going to have it again. But for many of us, we don't remember because we're constantly thinking about the next thing, trying to get to the next fence post, so to speak, and we miss out on the, the beauty of it. And lastly, We struggle to remember because we think to what end? What's the point? This one is really kind of where I hang my hat. I'm a a task-oriented, doer, performance junkie. if, If something's not going to accomplish something, my mantra in life, not healthy most of the time, is what's the point? If, there's, if I don't see a point, then why am I going to do it? And I would imagine there are many in this room tonight that go, what's the point of remembering? I mean, come on. It can't be that important, really. Well, Paul says differently. So he goes on and he says some pretty interesting choice words. He says, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, hello, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. All right. So I'm not going to get into what circumcision is. I think you guys get that. We studied it in Exodus. We're good. What I do want you to realize is they are not calling them a pet name, right? This isn't something that's nice of them to call them. And Paul is saying, look, you Gentiles, you uncircumcisioned who were called that by the circumcision. He's trying to put people in two categories, Gentile, Jews. They hated each other. They weren't friends. They didn't like each other. Up to this point, Paul has been talking about all of the church in Ephesus. And at this point, he is going to narrow in for the next handful of verses and speak specifically to the Gentiles. There's some specific reasons for that. It's it's really important for you to understand that. So he's going to talk to these specific groups of people, these Gentiles, which I would guess that most of us kind of fall into that category. But he says something interesting. I don't know if you catch it. He says, which is made made in the flesh by hands, which... If you read it at first glance, you're like, well, duh, that's how you do that process. But what he was alluding to, it's this idea of idols. So he's in Ephesus where idols are all over the place, where they would literally sculpt him. And so although he's going to talk specifically to the Gentiles, he's kind of side of his mouth saying, hey, you Jews, I want you to pay attention to what I'm about to say because you have made this act of circumcision and what you've kind of done to separate yourself from the Gentiles an idol, and I'm going to address that indirectly to you. So although he's going to speak specifically to the Gentiles, he kind of opens it up. So then he gets into a list that's pretty tough to read. In verse 12, he starts off with what word? Remember. I think he repeats himself again because just like you and I, he knows that they're going to struggle to remember or frankly want to remember what he's about to say. He goes on and says this. He says, 
Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Very uplifting things to remember. Not, hey, remember this awesome time that we had? Remember that movie we went to? It's remember some things that aren't super fun. But what he wants to get across is he wants them to remember who they once were before knowing Christ. So to break this down in maybe some words that make a little bit more sense, he first says they were separated from Christ. They were Christless. They were literally without having an understanding, and they were separated from Christ. To, to be separated from Israel in the Old Testament to, meant to literally be apart from the Israelite community. It was, it was kind of a big, big deal because if you read the Old Testament, we constantly hear that salvation was for who? Anybody? The Jews. And it was from the Jews. So this group of people literally didn't even have the framework of who Christ is. This word separated, if you do any kind of study on it, literally means without. So another way to say it is they were without a Messiah. So if you begin to just think in your own heart, when you begin to remember, when you, if you are somebody who professes the name of Christ, what it was like without a Messiah, it's not a fun thing to remember sometimes. They had a history with no purpose, no meaning, and nothing. So then he goes on and he says that, you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Some translations, if you have it, it'll say that they were alienated from the citizenship. So another way to put it, if you kind of think of it in this context, they were stateless. Right? They were not part of this nation, this tribe of Israel. They were completely separated. Interestingly, this word alienated, which means estranged, um, completely like removed from, is mentioned only two other times in all of the New Testament. One in Colossians, and then one in Ephesians 4. And let, check it out what it says here. Next slide. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. He's talking at this time to the Jews. In the futile thinking of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, and they are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. Paul is saying, hey, Gentiles, remember that you're Christless. Remember that you're stateless. You literally don't even have a life in God, which is just gut-riching. He then goes on and he says these words. He says, and strangers to the covenants of promise. So what's he talking about? Well, starting back with Abraham, there was the Abrahamic covenant that got set up. It was when God came to Abraham, he said, look, I'm going to make you a nation. I'm going to literally populate the world with your offspring. It's going to be really cool. Even though you're 90, we're going to, you're going to have a baby, so forth and so on. Also, the Savior of the world is going to come from you. And then all of these covenants were then made from the Palestinian covenant, from the Davidic covenant, and then eventually the new covenant of this Messiah who is going to come. Another way to put it is the Gentiles were completely uninformed that they could ultimately one day have friendship with God. They had no concept of it. So they were not only Christless and stateless, but they were literally without a friendship, without a relationship with the God of the universe, which is a bummer. And then he gets into this interesting statement. Having no hope. They were hopeless. And I know as I've talked to, to many of you, that is where you find yourself tonight. The hand that you've been dealt, what's going on in your world with family, with friends, the direction you have for school or for work, you, you find your place hopeless, not sure where to turn, not sure where to put your hope and you're sitting there and you're walking in here tonight just heavy burdened with this, this idea of hopeless. You watch the news very much and, and suicide is rampant and abuse is rampant and cutting because folks are hopeless. 160 times the word hope is used in the Bible. 160. Every single one of those, the Gentiles have no concept of. 
They're literally hopeless. Because, see, the reality is true hope can be based only on a true promise and on confidence in someone who can perform that promise, and they're hopeless because they did not have a future with Christ. So as I was reading this over and over and over again, I'm being reminded that Paul twice has said, remember who you once were. And I'm like, I got here and I was like, it can't be worse than that. Like, like really? Like, you want me to continue to ponder this is who I was? And then the last thing he says is that they were without God in the world. Ultimately, they were a godless people. But now you've got to understand the context here. They're in Ephesus. They had gods everywhere. We've talked a lot about it, that they were a polytheistic. They had literally a god for everything. So much so that we see later when Paul is on his journeys that he came and he was talking to them and he was reminding them, look, let me talk to you about the unknown God. I mean, they literally had a God for everything. So when he is saying that they are godless, what he is really meaning is that they do not know the one and true God. Let me explain it this way. Romans 1. Paul is specifically talking to the Romans. He's not talking specifically to the Ephesians, but to me, this is one of the scariest passages in all all of scripture it says this for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so they are without excuse he goes on and he says for although they knew God they did not honor God or give thanks to him but they became futile in their thinking Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animal, and creepy things. I don't know if they were making idols out of centipedes or what, but they were godless. And over and over and over, I continue to come back to this idea that Paul is saying, look, Gentiles, Be reminded of who you once were. I'm like, really? Paul, like, you want us to, like, dwell on that? Like, not a real pleasant list. And here's what I started to realize in our own hearts, in my own heart. They were in a desperate situation, and so are you and I. Unless you are by blood a Jew, then everybody else in this room is categorized also as a Gentile. So this writing is not just for the Gentiles of Ephesus. It is for all of us to hear the reality that we too, without trusting in Christ, are in the exact same position. We are Christless. We are stateless. We are friendless, hopeless, and godless. That's who we were before Christ. And we need to remember this. I'm more convinced after this week than ever that we spend way too much time focusing on the next thing that we need to do, the next Bible verse we need to memorize, the next church service that we need to go to. And if we as a group of people would start to actually remember who we once were, we would begin to embrace the power of remembrance. Because there is a point. And here is some of just the beginnings, the tip of the iceberg of the power of remembrance. The first thing is that gratitude would be so unbelievable on us. I'm a, I'm a naturally unthankful person. You can ask my wife. Not a great character quality at times. We'll be doing something and I'm always looking for like the, the grass is greener on the other end of the coin. When we stop like he is talking about here and we remember who we once were without Christ, oh my goodness, would that not just well up this thankful, like holy cow, God saved me? Are you kidding me? But most of us just go through our life taking it for granted. We're like, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. Like, duh, like for sure. Man, the power of remembrance would stir in us a gratitude of thankfulness that we couldn't stop telling the world. Secondly, the power of remembrance brings hope. For all of you who feel hopeless, 
what happens is you get so focused on the here and the now, the circumstance that you're in. But when you start to remember the incredible story, as Amanda and I started to remember like where God has taken us for the last 13 years, there were seasons that I literally felt hopeless when we shut the church down. There was a season that I went through about six months of depression, and I was like, what kind of God would let us go plant a church and then have us close it? Really? And one day, Amanda walks out and goes, maybe the exact God you needed so that you could be humbled and see that you need him. And I was like, well, snap. (laughs) Probably didn't respond that well then, but man, when we remember, hope just wells up in a way that we can't even fathom. Another power of remembrance is change. Like, it just brings change when you remember. Like, I joke with Quinn, like, she's learning to ride her bike. We've got this little Strider bike that she runs around, and I'm weirdly kind of the overprotective one and Amanda's like ah she'll figure it out because when she remembers that she fell and busted her knee she goes hey I'm not going to go down this hill as fast she's still going to go down because she's a daredevil but she remembers it causes some change right in our lives it remembers when we were knuckleheads when we were in college or for some of you in junior high still or wherever when you remember back and you go that probably wasn't the best idea you start to make some changes in your life power of remembrance brings perspective. Have you ever been in that season in your life when you literally feel like the whole world is just kind of going into a tunnel? There's a little bit of fog. You can kind of make out some light. Maybe you think it might be just because you're in a daze. But when you start to remember and you start to talk about remembering with other people, man, does it bring perspective. I mean, we joke around our house all the time that, man, whenever we start to, to complain about something, wow, I'm so glad we have first world problems. Perspective changes things very, very quickly. When you begin to see those who are hurting, those who have gone through way worse than you, maybe even your own story, like, we're not terminally unique. I was having a conversation with a friend the other day, and I just said, I I heard a pastor once say that we always think we're terminally unique, and so we have such a distorted view. We're not. Our stories line up in lots of different ways. One other one is the power of Remembrance brings community. How many of you guys, um, like me, potentially completely unlike Mark, and I hope he hears this when he's listening to it in Ecuador, like camping, like going out and getting dirty, like being outside? Really? No, no love. All right, you guys are all terrible. Thanks. So I love camping. Like It's one of my favorite things to do next to skiing. And one of the things that inevitably happens is nature's TV, Right? You get around a fire at night, and what ends up at some point starting to happen, right? You start telling stories, right? And if it's a bunch of dudes, those stories go sideways real fast. If there's mixed company, it somewhat stays appropriate. But you start telling these stories, right? And it's not this like one-up game, but you're like, you just start telling stories. Maybe for you it's not that. It's like the Thanksgiving table. But all of a sudden, like an hour in of telling stories, like there's just this community that happens. Like you're just like like in it together and then you pull out a guitar and start singing Kumbaya and everybody cries and it's this emotional moment, right? Remembering has this unbelievable way to bring community in your lot family, in your family, in your home. And lastly, and maybe most importantly, the power of remembrance stirs up a sensitivity in us. We've been talking a lot about the sevens and about caring for our neighbors When you start to truly remember who you once were apart from Christ, when you walk outside your door and you see your neighbor to the left or you see your neighbor to your right or across the street or wherever that may be for you, your heart just wells up because you remember you're going, I wonder if they know Jesus. I wonder if their story's like mine. I wonder if we have some similarities that I can connect on them so that we can then share and I can share, dude, I was this crazy knucklehead And I I somehow convinced this woman to marry me. And our first year was like a train wreck. But man, God has been doing some awesome things. Like, man, it would just stir a sensitivity. That's the point of remembrance. That's what Paul wants the Gentiles to know. And he wants us to know. And then he carries on in an interesting text, very similar to verses 1 through 10. He starts a sentence with but and turns a 180. In verse 13, he says, But now in Christ Jesus, 
You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. I love that he changes his words up a little bit. Before he said, but God. This time he says, but now in Christ. He just gets done telling them, look, you need to remember who you were. And now he's going to go into telling them to remember who you are now. Not tomorrow, not yesterday. Remember who you are in this moment, right this second. And if you are a believer in Christ, then what Paul is saying in every single moment of your life, you need to remember who you are now. And then he goes into this unbelievably beautiful picture, and he says that those who were far off, they were way over here, are now brought near to God by what? Not everybody at once. By the blood of Christ. But in Christ, by the blood, they are brought near. This idea of of nearness is a spiritual intimacy that they can now have access to God. These crazy folks who are Christless, hopeless, because of what Jesus has done, can be brought near. I, I picture it in, in this regards. So I, I travel um, somewhat for, for my, my work, and I will go at times for, typically it's two or three days, I'll, I'll go to some part of the country, and, and I'm there for a little bit. And all the while I'm gone, uh, Amanda and I are, are talking, and, and Quinn and I are talking, and thank goodness for FaceTime, like, unbelievable, right? So like I'll be, you know, in Seattle, let's say, and I'm FaceTiming Quinn in, in her own little way. She's like, dad, dad, work. I'm like, yeah, dad, dad, take a plane. Yeah. She, her vocabulary's not big. She's two. <clears throat> and then she's like, dad, dad, come home. And I'm like, yeah, daddy's going to be home in the next day or two. And she's like, okay, good. And then there's this moment when I come home and the way it works in our house, you kind of drive kind of past our front door and then you turn into our driveway and typically when I'm coming home Amanda has told Quinn that I'm on my way home and a lot of times not all the times because again she's a two-year-old she's standing at the front door waiting for me and she's like hey and I see her and I wave and I honk and then all of a sudden she bolts she goes running and I know the path she's taken and I go in I park and I come in and I open the door and, you know, nine times out of ten, or at least I tell myself that, she comes running at full speed, no care in the world, and just jumps in my arm and is screaming, Daddy, Daddy, and I just grab her and I hold her. I, I picture Paul in his prison cell telling this group of people, look, remember who you were, but remember who you are now, that you have this nearness of a father who... You were once off, but you are now near, and when I get home, all I want to do is hold Quinn and kiss her, and I don't want to let her go. That's the picture I have of this passage of him saying, remember who you are now. You are so near and so intimate to God, you can't even imagine it. Here's my fear. This verse is so incredibly powerful. And it is so unbelievably marvelous to look at that I think if we're not careful, you and I will miss the weight and the magnitude because we've heard it so many times before. Oh, Jesus. Oh, he makes me near to God. Oh, but, but, but. We so overcomplicate this beautiful picture that once we were this way, but in Christ we are near in a nearness that we can't even fathom. So many of us, and myself included, constantly question whether I feel near to God. Is he close to me or not? When I am squeezing the living life out of Quinn, she doesn't have to question whether or not I'm near her. Most of the time she's like, Daddy, 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 like, let me go. What if we for the first time, actually embraced his nearness? What if we actually sat in that moment, instead of trying to figure out the next thing that we need to do to be a good Christian, we 
We just experienced that nearness in a way that we never have before. I believe we do that through remembering. But man, do we struggle. We struggle to overcomplicate it. For some of you, you may be like me, you're a skeptic. You're like, can it really be that simple? By his blood, by his death and resurrection, can it, can it really be that simple? I mean, I feel like I gotta add things. I gotta read my Bible more. All those things are good things, but Paul is saying right now in this moment, Remember who you are, you're near him in a way that can never, ever, ever be taken away. And then he goes on, and these next couple verses have gripped me in a way I'm not sure a text ever has. He goes on after this beautiful passage, and he says, in verse 14, he says, for he himself is our peace. Who has made us both one, has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile to us, us both to God in one body through the cross by killing the hostility. What an interesting word, especially in today's age. A word that is pretty foreign. A word that I'm not sure we even really know how to frame up. I think we don't know how to frame it up because we haven't experienced it. All week long, I've been racking my mind. I'm like, all right, what picture can I give? Like, how can I explain this, this peace that says that in Christ, in himself, he is our peace? We see it throughout the, the New Testament. How do we explain what this peace is when we live in an incredibly hostile world? And earlier, before we came out tonight, I asked the guys, like, what then does peace look like in your life? So I ask you, what does peace mean? If you're like me, when I started to ponder that, I kind of just sat there with a deer in the headlights going, I don't know. Like, no war, no violence. He's talking about himself being our peace. I think for me, the reason I struggle to understand or even articulate it is because I'm not sure in all of my years of being a Christian, I've ever sat and in his peace, I've let the chaos of life rule me. I've let busyness rule me. I've just kind of gone about it. And I don't know if you know this or not, but the scripture says that God is not a God of chaos. He is a God of peace. He's a God of order, yet many of you would say your life is spinning out of control or on the verge. Then my friends, have we actually remembered who we are in Christ? Isaiah 9, 6 is the famous prophecy of, of Jesus. It's typically what we read at Christmas time. And it says this, for to us a child, Jesus, is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Prince of Peace. Man, I would long to experience that. He then goes on and he explains that his peace has two profound purposes. The first is to bring unity, to bring specific unity between the Jews and the Gentiles, a, a group of people who hated each other more than any hatred that you can possibly imagine. 
There are stories of literally a woman Gentile being in a room, going into labor, it going completely sideways, and there is a whole bunch of Jewish people all around, and they would not even stand up to go help her in her pregnancy because they hated each other so much that there was no way in the world they would help a pregnant woman who is struggling. They hated each other. And Paul says, wait, 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 but Christ is peace and he has broken down a wall. Now, lots of commentators have debated about what this actually is. Some say it was the temple curtain that was ripped. Others say that he's talking more figuratively, a spiritual wall, which is probably a good context. But most likely he's reminded of this wall that was around the temple. So the temple in Jerusalem had these interesting courts, okay? There was a court called the Court of Women, where the women could hang out there. They had a court of the Gentiles, and then they had where everybody, all the rest of the Jews could go. That there was literally a dividing wall. And Paul was very familiar with this, because part of the reason that he was now in prison was because three years earlier, he had been accused of taking a Jew into that space. So Josephus and some others recently, not too recently, I don't remember the date, found this artifact. And this is what the wall that was dividing the Jews from the Gentiles said. Next slide. No foreigner may enter within the barrier and enclosure around the temple. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. It's their version of no trespassing on steroids. (laughs) It's your own fault if you cross the line. We're going to kill you. Sorry. We warned you. They literally had this wall that was completely surrounding this with this completely, they think about 13 to 33 times, they're not exactly sure because they only have two of them, that was constantly reminding the Jews and the Gentiles, you aren't mixing, sorry. And what Paul is saying, that the peace of God breaks through that. We live in a day and age where even as a church, we continue to build fences. We continue to not embrace what Paul's talking about, a friendship. The the peace of Christ came so that Jews and Gentiles could be united in one body. In In the text, he further goes on and he talks about how he took two and made them one new man. He wasn't making the Jews Gentiles and the Gentiles Jew. He was making a new humanity called Christians, called the body of Christ. And yet, Thousands of years later, we are still in the context of the church, let alone the rest of the world, continuing to live at hostility with each other from racism to economic divide to gossip to cliques to you name it. And my friends, what Paul is saying is you folks, you Jews and Gentiles need to remember who you once were, remember who you are now, because the peace of God wants to actually bring peace so that you can have unity together. Then why in the world do we continue to hurt each other? Because we're not experiencing peace in our own lives. And when I lived out in Colorado, one of the most hostile environments I have ever been in in my entire life. We lived right outside of Boulder. It's the number three most unchurched city in all of America. I would literally be sitting at Starbucks, and here if you're sitting at Starbucks and you got your Bible open, like seven other people do, and they come over and like, hey, what are you reading? Oh my goodness, Song of Solomon? Are you like dating somebody? Oh my gosh. <laughs> no, I'm just weird and just randomly reading it. It's cool. In Boulder... <laughs> You'd have your Bible open, they're like, what is that? That's weird. So my closest friends were Wiccan, which is a study of witches, were atheist, Hindu, Jew- Judaism, Mormon, you fill in the blank. The interesting thing in this culture there, because the environment was so hostile, we eventually, it was kind of deemed the church planner's graveyard, The interesting that I saw happen, though, was that the church united in a way I had never seen before. Churches from all walks of life, from your crazy charismatics 
to one of our closest friends was a Messianic Jew who was basically was a Southern Baptist with a Messianic Jew pastor, which was the craziest mix, who in the middle of his sermons would literally start singing. No lie. We would all get together on a monthly basis and remember and share and build each other up in a way I'd never seen before. I'm convinced it was because they realized that they were in a hostile environment and without unity, without peace, they were never going to reach the area. If you're in the Midwest, it's like we got that church and that church and like we're going to just do this. And we do it, frankly, in this body at times, unfortunately. But the peace of God came to break that. And then lastly, and in the most unbelievable verse, he says something so profound. Verse 16, he says this. And might reconcile us both to who? God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. We talk a lot about Jesus because he is all that matters. If he was not God, if he did not die, if he did not raise, then what's the point? We were reminded in Romans that we were reconciled by God by his death and we are saved by his life. There is something so powerful. The peace of God unites us to be able to experience a nearness to God in a way that I'm not sure we have ever actually embraced. Because if it did, it would radically change everything about us. It would change the way we sing. It would change the way that we truly worship without song. It would change the way that we interact with our children. It would change everything. And so, here is where my heart eventually got to. Paul says, remember who you once were, these crazy list of things. Remember who you are now so that you can begin to to embrace something unique. And a little bit later in Ephesians, there's this text that literally I don't think I've ever seen before, and we're going to get to it in a couple weeks, but... Ephesians 3, 6 says this. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. These Gentiles who were once far off are heirs and members of the same body and they get all of the promises they are his children so often when we talk about being God's children and we talk about adoption we want to change this caveat and we want to say that we're his sons and his daughters and to be honest we completely mix the context of adoption because being adopted as a son Even you women is an incredibly important thing because the son was the one who got all of the inheritance. So we as a body, men and women being called the son of God means we all get to be heirs. And I know why we do it and we do it to make ourselves feel better, but my my friends, we, we, we need to stop because we need to embrace the fact that God wants us to be heirs with him. Here's the best way I can describe it. Six months after we brought home Quinn, you have to wait six months and do a whole bunch of paperwork. And then you go to your final court date. And you're sitting before a judge, next slide. And we are, at this point, her legal guardians, but she has a different social security card. She has a different last name. And then we're sitting there, and we're sitting on one side of this table. This judge is in front of us. Quinn is with us. She has an advocate, basically a, a lawyer, so to speak, for her on her behalf. We're in this, literally, this legal moment. And we're going through all this paperwork and this back and forth. And there's this moment at the very end. When the judge looks right at Amanda and I, and he says these words, 
Henceforth, Quinn will be as natural born to Craig and Amanda. There is a legal moment when Quinn literally becomes a Kubitschek. She is our child. She has the right to everything that I ever will own and possess. All of my love and my hope and my affection. She is my heir. Because she is just as a natural born. And what I find so unbelievably interesting is there is not a day that goes by that I have to remind Quinn that she's a Kubitschek. I, I don't have to like talk her up why Kubitschek is cool. She just knows it. It's just part of her. She knows we're crazy. We, she knows that we go on crazy vacations. We know that she knows that we're food people. She is a Kubitschek and I don't have to remind her What that text in Ephesians is saying is that you and I are heirs. We are as natural born to God. Yet so many times we forget, we question, we wonder, we don't really believe we're adopted. My friends, the only way I am convinced that we will ever truly embrace our adoption and understand that we are truly his sons is that we will remember who we once were and remember who we are now and finally we will begin to experience for the first time maybe the peace of God. What if tonight whether you're a believer or you're sitting here tonight going, holy cow, I have not had a but now in Christ moment. What if as we start to sing, your heart is so stirred because of the power of remembrance as you look back of who you were and who you are now? And maybe for the first time you just embrace peace. Will you stand with me? As we sing tonight, I want to encourage you to maybe go out of your comfort zone. Maybe for you, you need to stand there. Maybe for you, you need to kneel down or sit or go to the back of the room or grab some friends and reminisce. But what if tonight, instead of leaving here with a laundry list of things that we need to go do, what if for the first time you just sat there and as we're singing and the song is coming over you and you start to sing, your mind is just filled with being reminded that you are his, that you have been brought near by the blood of Christ alone. So Father, I pray in a way that we can't even understand that our hearts would well up and be reminded that now in you we can have nearness. And for those of my friends who they are not near to you, that in this moment, maybe for the first time, they would embrace that reality.